Welcome to the Drop Time Report. Turn up the volume and listen to amazing stories about big bucks and the hunters who harvested them. Here is your host, outdoor writer, Tracy Breen. Welcome to the Drop Time Report. On this week's episode, we're going to have Bernie Berenger. Bernie is a well-known outdoor writer and bow hunter who travels all over the country hunting whitetails. The cool thing is uh, he often does it on a budget. In fact, he has written a book called The Freelance Bow Hunter uh, that has become very popular. In that book, he kind of highlights all the tactics needed to be successful in the woods, but also how to do it without breaking the bank. Uh, It should be a great interview, but before we get Bernie on the show, I'd like to thank my sponsors. Our title sponsor, Redneck Blinds, Fourth Arrow Camera Arms, Windscent, Lucky Buck Mineral, Huntworth Clothing. If you're looking for clothing that doesn't break the bank, check out Huntworth. Uh, Morel Targets, check out their new high roller target. Grim Reaper Broadheads, Pine Ridge Archery, Schaefer Performance Archery, Outdoorsman's, and wilderness athlete. Uh, a lot of hunters struggle with their weight. As we age, we struggle with staying in shape. Uh, check out wildernessathlete.com. They make a variety of nutritional products that can help you shed some pounds. Uh, if you want to check it out, uh, you can use my discount code DROP10. Now let's go ahead and get Bernie on the show. Welcome to the Drop Tie-In Report, Bernie. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. Good. Well, th- thanks for being on the show. And before we get too deep into it, uh, just kind of highlight what it is you do for a living for those that don't know. You've been at this game for a long time. I um, have been at this game for a long time. I've, uh, I'm primarily an outdoor writer. Um, my, my income, I guess, has adapted over the years. I uh, started out as a magazine writer in 1990, um, was started selling articles to magazines like Fur fish game and North American whitetail and some others. And um, now about half of my income comes from online writing. I also have an email news blast um, that goes out once a week, and I've got over 100,000 subscribers to that. I've, I write for quite a few websites, and uh, I got a YouTube channel, and I've just uh, figured out how to make a living without getting a real job, I guess. <laughs> uh, that makes two of us, I guess. <laughs> um, and your specialty, your forte, is you know public land bucks going to areas you've never hunted before and figuring the deer out. Uh, so hopefully you can tag one. Um, and you've written a book on the subject, correct? Yeah, uh, the book is called the Freelance Bow Hunter, and uh, it's a it's a do it yourself strategies guide for uh, public land hunters that are traveling. And, uh, you know, I, uh, about 15 years ago, I noticed that there was a huge void of information of people, uh, especially from like the East Coast, well, Michigan, where you're at, and also, you know, things, Pennsylvania, New York, and the East Coast, and, you know, outdoor TV kind of blew up and 15, 20 years ago, and all of a sudden, uh, people are like, geez, I never see a buck like that where I live. I'm, maybe I should go to the Midwest or something, you know? And uh, so I kind of positioned myself because that's what I do. And, uh, you know, I hunt all over the Midwest and wrote a book about it that's done really well. And that's kind of the focus of my uh, YouTube channel, which is called Bow Hunting Road. And uh, so 
that's what I've really focused on. I've been really fortunate. I've been able to hunt in a lot of states and, and learn a lot about, uh, um, well, you know, the more mistakes you make, the better you get at it. I guess that's, sure. the, that's one way to put it. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate that I've been pretty successful and killed some pretty nice bucks on public land in different states. And it took me a long time to, you know, to, uh, you know, become fairly consistent at it though. Now, uh, maybe highlight some of the tips and tactics in the book for, for those listening. You know, if, if I want to go to Kansas, if I want to go to Iowa or Nebraska, let me back up. I guess first and foremost, it's important that if guys want to kill a big buck, they go to a place where they live, you know, and that's why you're picking places like Kansas, Iowa, and Nebraska. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and, uh, you know, it all depends on what a person's goals are. Um, you know, I, you know, you go to say North Dakota and, you know, a, a good representative buck that you'd be happy with might be 130. where you go to Iowa, you might decide I'm going to hold out for a 150. And, uh, you know, it's, it's different everywhere. You know, there's, there's good public land in Ohio and Indiana and I've, I've hunted Kentucky and, um, there, there's just a lot of good places that you can go and, you know, try to shoot one of the better bucks that are available for that area. And, and it's always different, but if a guy really wants to set out first, you got to decide where you want to go. And then you got to get a tag, of course. And, you know, everybody wants to hunt Iowa and there's a good reason for that. There's, you know, about 20,000 applicants every year for 6,000 tags. So it takes you three years or so of preference points to draw for Iowa. So if you want to hunt Iowa, you better start putting in for points and uh, Kansas, most zones, the better zones you can draw about every other year. And there's a lot of states where you buy over-the-counter licenses. For example, you know, where I'm going to Nebraska, you can buy two buck tags and you can buy them over-the-counter. Just when you show up, you just buy a tag and hunt. So, you know, you want to decide where to go and and uh, what kind of terrain you'd like to hunt. I, You know, I'd love hunting Montana. Southeastern Montana is a really fun place to hunt, but it's completely different than, say, hunting southern Iowa or Illinois or something like that where the terrain is totally different. Uh, first time I went to North Dakota, I couldn't find a place to put my hang on stands because all the trees are either crooked or, you know, just uh, snarly or something. And, and sure. I, I decided that, you know, next time I went to North Dakota, I just took a ladder stand and a couple of ground blinds and, um, you know, it, but it was fun. It was completely different. I learned a lot and sometimes I kill a buck and sometimes I don't, but I, you know, I always enjoy the experience. I, I try to go with a, with an open mind and an attitude that I'm just going to enjoy the hunt and try to learn something new. And over time you, you get to the point where you can pretty consistently figure them out. What is your success rate on public land? If you were to average it out, you know, I'm pretty selective. Uh, I, for the last 15 years or so, I've done 25 trips, I think in the last 25 different state trips in the last 15 to 18 years. And, pretty much my standard is a three-year-old buck. So I'm pretty selective. I pass, you know, some bucks that some people would probably be happy with, but I figure I'm probably a little better than one out of three, um, hunt one out of three that I'm successful. Uh, not quite two out of three. I guess I should sit down and figure that out sometime if I can remember them all. But, uh, um, you know, the more you go back to the same area, uh, if you pick a piece of public land and you really go and hunt it for a year, then when you go back the next year, you know, it's so much better. You know, there's, you found the doe bedding areas the first year by walking through them and spooking the does out. 
the next year you don't have to go through them. And, uh, you know, so for me, I like trying new areas and sometimes I go back to the same spots. Other times I just would like to go try to, to find a new area and just experience something different and, and the challenge of learning, you know, how to figure the deer, the deer patterns and movements and everything out. Well, you know, if you do that, your success rates aren't going to be quite as high as if you pick a piece of property and really learn and then just go back to the same place year after year. So there's, it all depends on what people are interested in when they leave home, I guess. Sure. Now let's break down uh, some tips for guys. So, you know, I'm planning a trip. Uh, How far in advance do I plan the trip? And what are the tactics you think that really uh, would help me narrow it down and increase my odds of success? Well, the first thing, of course, is you got to pick a place to go and, and, uh, you want to go where the, you know, your odds of seeing a good buck are the best. And one of the things that's in my book, there's a whole section, there's 16 States where I, I went through all of the Pope and Young records and I, I marked the States and, and in all the, the counties in each of these States that produce the most Pope and Young records. So you can look at a map of the state and you can see, oh yeah, that part of the state's way better than the rest of it. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of what you want to look for. Then you got to pick a piece of public land that you're going to go to. And I mean, I really analyze them by looking at uh, aerial photography and uh, really, you know, pick them apart and try to find some spots that I think are going to be good when I get there. And sometimes you find that they're, uh, they are really good. Sometimes you think, well, that looked really good on paper, but it's not so good once you can get your boots on the ground. It's always a good idea also to call a wildlife biologist and, or a game warden or, you know, somebody and ask some questions about, you know, how much pressure does this public land get? And, and, uh, you know, a lot of them will tell you, well, it gets quite a bit of pressure during rifle season, but for bow hunters, you know, there's not that many, um, bow hunters that are using it. Locals typically hunt on the evenings and the weekends. So they, they don't go deep very often. Now some, some locals are going pretty deep into these properties, but I found that if you get a mile off the road, a lot of times your uh, your chances of seeing other hunters go down, except possibly on the weekend. But the other situation is a lot of, in farm country, the Midwest, a lot of public hunting properties are surrounded by agriculture, fields, and so forth. And a lot of times the deer are bedding on the public properties and feeding in the agriculture fields in the evening. So the edges of the public hunting lands can be better hunting than just going way back a mile or a mile and a half in, you know? So everyone, I mean, sure. you just have to kind of analyze it. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And, and, but that's the key. Um, and I would say, you know, once you arrive at the property, then, uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I made early on and I, and a lot of people make is that you walk back into an area and it looks good. And all of a sudden you find scrapes and rubs and it's all torn up and you go, I got to get a tree stand up and start hunting. Well, Sometimes that's not the best thing because uh, it's better to, you know, really understand the property better and how the deer are moving. And so when you get up in a tree stand, you have confidence that you're in the right spot. And the only way to have confidence in your right spot is to really, you know, really work the property out and walk it out, spend the time to really figure out the movement patterns and stuff like that. And then my first sit normally on a new property is going to be what I call an observation sit. And, um, I learned this probably 20 years ago, 
that sometimes you're better off to just put a tree stand up in an area where you can see like across the fields or, you know, on a ridge top where you can kind of see the ravines and stuff like that and, and just kind of, you know, understand better how the deer are moving and then kind of close in on them as time goes on. It seems like if you're hunting for about a week, which is normally what I'm doing a week or 10 days there, by the time the fourth or fifth day comes, you've probably picked out one or two spots that you think, okay, if I'm going to kill a buck, it's going to happen here. And then you just spend all your time there, but it takes, you know, the work, you got to do the work to get to that point. A big part of that is trail cameras too. You know, you learn so much from trail cameras. And a lot of times I hunt in the mornings and evenings and check cameras during the day. Um, I found even on a rut hunt, most of the time you're hunting um, food in the evenings. You're hunting the travel patterns between the where they're bedding and they're feeding towards the food in the evenings, and then you're hunting towards the bedding areas in the morning. And it's you know it's a difference. You got to have at least two tree stands up all the time. It seems like, and part of that's wind direction. The other part of it is you just have better odds. I, I hardly ever sit all day, Tracy. You know, people talk about getting in a tree and sitting all day during the rut. Um, I can't part of do it. it. Is, I, <laughs> I, I can't, can't sit that I can't long. Hardly do, I can't hardly do it either. But also what I've found is that there aren't very many spots that are good both in the morning and the evenings and all, you know, and all day. It, you're, you're almost better off to move because a spot that's better in the evening is not going to be the same spot that's better in the morning. And um, so, I mean, I, you know, I'm still learning this as I go, but, uh, uh, it really, I just, I'm very, a couple of times I went out to set all day and twice, tw- the first two times I went out and said, okay, I'm going to sit all day. Both times I killed the deer about nine, 10 o'clock in the morning and I never, never went through with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, how many scouting cameras do you feel you need to walk into the woods with? Uh, when you're on one of these trips, I typically have about four out. Um, I, you know, I own a lot more than that, but uh, I rarely have more than about four. And a big part of that is just because I'm checking them every day and, uh, it just takes time to do it. And, and you're leaving scent and things like that. Um, a big part of why I'm using scouting cameras is inventorying what's available. I want to inventory you know, I don't, I'm not going to hold out for 140 inch buck if the biggest buck on the property is 125 inches, you know? So yeah. I, I want to know what's there and I want to know it as quick as possible. So I'm, I'm taking like a scrape, scrape dripper with some active scrape or special golden estrus and hanging it over a scrape and putting a camera on it. And you're going to get a picture of most of the bucks in the area within the first 48 hours by doing that. Uh, I'm using more of these cell phone scouting cameras, man. I know a lot of people are feel like this is an unfair advantage, but I'm there. Wow. You know, you don't have to go check them and they're texting me pictures and I can, I get up in the morning and go through and scroll through the photos that I got during the night. And it helps me make a decision on which stand to go to in the morning. So I've got one of the covert Blackhawks that I got two of them. Actually, they, they're, uh, they're Verizon scouting cameras. Okay. And, uh, I, I, I've been using those more and more, and uh, it's all, I, I kind of feel guilty about it just because I feel like <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, wow, this is really, this is a big advantage. Not too guilty, right? Not, yeah, not, don't feel that guilty <laughs> when I'm standing over a nice 10-pointer. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. 
Okay, so, you know, we're talking about stand placement and cameras and, and you know, looking at aerial photos. Um, what other things? Let's, let's talk about time. I know uh, from hunting dozens of states over the course of my life, you got to have enough time in the field, especially when you're going to an area you've never been. Uh, these guys who try to have a long weekend hunt, not that they can't be successful, but, man, you really need, like you were saying, a week to 10 days to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah, you really do. I, I mean, a long weekend hunt is pretty good if you're fairly close to home and you can do it on more than one weekend. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I'm in Minnesota and I can run over to North Dakota in four hours and maybe I'd do three weekends or something or two. And uh, Wisconsin's not too far away, but you know, if you're in Michigan and you're going to go hunt Kansas, you know, you give yourself at least a week. And, uh, the, un unfortunately, you know, you can find yourself in a situation where you got to go home, right. As you feel like I'm really getting close to killing, there's two bucks here that I think I really got a shot at and now I got to go home. So, you know, give yourself plenty of time. And, and when you look at these trips you've gone on over the years, are you really focusing in on hunting the rut or do you sometimes go early season? Uh, what is your tactic there? I have done uh, three different, I've, I've not been done very well in October because they're just, they're just, it's just tough, you know, to take that much time and, and the success rates are just not as high as they are during the rut. The first, the first two weeks in November, I'm always going to be somewhere. I've, I, I've lived in Minnesota for 20 years and I've never been in the state on opening day of rifle season, which is the first weekend in November. <laughs> so okay. uh, yeah. I, I'm always, yeah, I'm always somewhere else where I have a better chance to shoot a big buck. But, um, the, 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 I love the rut hunts. I've done some early season hunts, which are just really fun. And in fact, you can, the nice thing about the earliest season hunts, there's a lot of States that the season opens on September 1st. And so you can go before the season and do some scouting and then make your move on opening day, you know, and, um, you know, North Dakota, Montana are two that I've done, uh, Kentucky. I did an early season bow hunt in, in Kentucky and I've killed some pretty nice, um, bucks that way because the deer are just so predictable more so than at any other time of the year, except maybe the latest part of the season when they're really focused on whatever food's available. But the, I like the early season hunts. It's comfortable weather and, you know, um, it's just really easy. You see a lot of deer in the alfalfa fields or whatever, and you just kind of try to figure out which trail they're coming out on. And that's been a lot of fun. I've killed a, a velvet 10 point buck, uh, doing that too. And that's another advantage of that early season. So, you know, the rut is probably 80% of my trips though. And I've done a couple of late season ones where, um, you know, at like right after Christmas and, uh, like Iowa did where I, they have the season goes till January 10th. And I went down there right after Christmas and I didn't actually get a buck that time, but I was a little too selective and passed up a couple bucks early in the hunt that later in the hunt, I was like, I probably should have shot those, but that's, you know, um, I'd, I'd rather eat my tag than, than have a regret about shooting a buck too early that I wasn't happy with. So. Um, but, the, 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 those, those hunts are difficult as far as the condition goes, because it could be so cold and stuff, but the deer are back in a really predictable pattern. They're looking for high carb foods. If there's corn in the fields or soybeans, you know, it's pretty easy to figure out 
where they're bedding and where they're feeding and just try to, you know, intercept them in between. What are some of the uh, biggest mistakes you see guys make or, you know, the biggest mistakes you made 20 years ago when traveling away from home? Well, I mentioned one of them already, um, you know, and that's getting in a stand too early before you really understand um, how the property lays out and everything. Um, another one I would say is not being aggressive enough. Um, you've got a limited amount of time and you really have to make a move quickly. If you're sitting in a stand and you're thinking, well, maybe I ought to be over there. Well, you better be, you get over there, you know, and, uh, you really got to scout it out. You're, you know, you do everything you can for scent control, but still you just have to take some chances at times. Um, you know, this velvet 10 pointer that I mentioned, earlier this is a buck that uh, you know i i knew where i had to be to kill that deer and the wind was going to blow when he when he stepped out in the field the wind was going to be blowing right at him and uh i but you know I, i'm running out of time and i just felt like i had a really good chance of killing him that night if i just took a big risk and and uh i and i did and it worked out and i got him um you know the other thing i mentioned like you know where are the deer bedding uh, if you've got all season and you got private property, you've got certain areas where you're just never going to go through during the hunting season and risk um, violating a bedding area. But when you're on a public property and you've got a lim- limited amount of time, you know, you just have to be more aggressive. And I've done some crazy things. I, um, I shot a buck one time because I saw a, a bunch of small bucks chasing a doe around on this side of this hill. And I just ran over there and put up my stand and got up and Half an hour later, a bigger one came through. He was just letting all the smaller bucks harass her and tire her out before he bred her. I suppose I don't know, but he <laughs> came. He came through a half an hour later, and I've done some. I I do one thing I call a bump and hunt, where I carry a tree stand and I go in and uh, where I think the bucks are bedding, and um, you know this one. I didn't get this buck, but this one time where I actually had a. Uh, I walked into this area and I saw this buck sneak out with his tail down and he just kind of hustled his way out of there. And I caught a couple glimpses of him as he left. And I walked over and looked and saw where he was bedding. And I went 40 yards downwind of where he was bedding, put up a stand. And two hours later, he came back and I didn't get a shot at him, but it was one of those situations. That's a tactic that could work. And, and, uh, you know, there, you just have to really be aggressive and, and hunt differently, you know, I killed a couple bucks sitting on a five gallon bucket on the ground because I just didn't want to go to the trouble to put up a tree stand and make the noise and risk scaring them. So I just snuck out there with a five gallon bucket and sat on the ground and killed two bucks that way. Now. Wow. So there, wow. it's, yeah, it's a different, it's a different mentality than, uh, you know, if you own a half a section or something like that and you can manage it well, like a lot of people do, you're going to hunt it a lot different than you hunt public land. Now, if, you know, you're an impatient guy and and you hear this podcast, you go, by golly, I'm going to, I'm going to start doing that. And I don't want to wait to draw a tag in Iowa. You know, what are, what are your favorite go-to states for over-the-counter bucks? Well, North and South Dakota are pretty good. Um, I, Oklahoma is kind of a sleeper and I think Indiana is a sleeper. I have not hunted Indiana but I've got some spots that I've been looking at and I know some people that have done pretty well, um, on uh, public land in Indiana. And I, I think it's kind of a sleeper. You just hardly ever read about, 
or you know see anything about Indiana, but there's a pretty good deer hunting there. How far in advance do you plan uh, a trip? Um, typically, I'm planning the winter before where I'm going to go um, for the next fall. So, you know, I've done some kind of uh, spur-of-the-moment things. And, in fact, you know, I've done situations where, you know, I had a Kansas tag a few years ago. I killed a buck in Kansas, and I'm like, well, I'm not ready to go home yet. So I went and hunted Missouri for six days before I went home. And Missouri's a, a another good state that the t- a tags are only 250 bucks, and you get two deer and two turkey for that. And uh, that's an over-the-counter state. There's tons of public land in Missouri. And um, there, I've heard rumors that they're going to raise their non-resident fees, but I think they're still going to be under 300 bucks. So that's a bargain compared to, you know, some of these, Kansas and Iowa, Montana. A lot of these are over 600 you know, by the time you get your preference points, they're five to seven hundred bucks for tags. Yeah, th- that brings up another point. You know, um, I've interviewed a lot of guys over the years for magazine articles, and I'm sure you have who uh, have kind of bucked the system in that they didn't spend a ton of money. And, and I know from speaking at wild game dinners, and, and you probably as well, that the misconception is. Uh, you know, if if you see a picture on Facebook and he's a 180-inch monster, well, that guy's got private land or he's wealthy or he pays a lot of money for a lease. And the truth is, uh, big bucks can still be killed on public land and, and it can be done for very little money, right? It certainly can. And, you know, I actually dedicate a section of my book to how to save money on meals and lodging and things like that. And, uh, you know, boy, a guy can do this on a shoestring. And, uh, you know, 180-inch bucks aren't common on public land anywhere. Sure. But they're yeah, they're I out it. there. You know, and I do I do the do-it-your-DIY public land column in each issue of North American Whitetail Magazine. And part of what I do for that is uh, interview people who have killed big bucks on public land. And it's really surprising. Um, you know, every year I go through a list of people that have killed 150s, 160s, 170s on public land in areas where there aren't that many of those size bucks are being killed on private land. So uh, there's some really good public land out there if you know what to look for. Some of it's really overlooked. There's Army Corps of Engineers land around a lot of reservoirs and states that most people don't realize it's open to hunting and more and more, this is, I love this, that states are going with these walk-in hunting areas where they actually they lease land or get permission from private landowners who allow people to hunt their land. Like, you know, the, a lot of different states have these access programs. Now, uh, private land open to sportsmen is one that comes to mind. It's in North Dakota. Uh, Kansas has a walk-in, WIHA, W-I-H-A, walk-in hunting area, and they, they print books. And it's all, a lot of them have interactive maps online so you can find these public hunting areas that are actually private land where they allow you to hunt. And um, that's great, I think, because, uh, you know, the landscape has really changed in some of the better states where the deer hunting is really good. There's so much land that's been leased up by outfitters and bought up by wealthy people. I'm really concerned about where the kids are going to hunt. And, you know, heck, when I was a kid, I could just ask farmers in my church and I'd have more places to bow hunt than I could even hunt. And nowadays a young guy, he's going to have a hard time finding a place to hunt unless, you know, he knows people that own property. So the more public land we can get, the better. I'm a big advocate for that. 
Now, are you using any of the uh, mapping software or on your GPS or anything to really figure out these pieces of property? You know, I I have both um, Scout Look and uh, Onyx Maps, and I've been using them now. Scout Look is just merged with HuntStand, and so I'm just kind of relearning that. Um, so I I do use those some. I haven't decided which one is going to be my go-to one at this point. There's um, another but, one uh, called Huntwise. You might want to look into that one as well. Um, it's okay. actually based out of based out of Michigan here. But uh, go oh, ahead. Okay, I'll check into it. But uh, you know, I use aerial photography all the time. If I have cell service, I'm looking at my phone all the time to see, you know, if where I'm standing in this woods, how is it in relation to a creek bed or something like that where the deer might be bedded. Now, I'm on an oak ridge. You know, I'm looking at, looking for an oxbow in a creek that might have a bunch of willows where the deer would bed and stuff like that. How they're going to get from point A to point B, and so aerial photography, it's uh, yeah, it's changed. I can't believe how much this has changed in the last 25 years that I've been doing this. You know, the up and down side of those mapping systems is there's no secret spot anymore. You know, I mean, if someone's got some gumption and they have that map in their hand. Uh, finding that secret spot is becoming harder and harder. Yeah, that's really true. Um, so in closing, uh, talk about a couple of your favorite bucks that you've killed on public land, you know, maybe, uh, the size of them or why they were your favorite buck. Maybe they're not the biggest buck. Maybe it was the story behind them. Yeah. The first one that comes to mind is a big eight pointer that I killed in Kansas, uh, I think it was 2013 and um, he was running with a 10 pointer that looked like about a three and a half year old deer to me. And this big eight pointer was just a huge body deer. And I haven't scored, I, I don't officially score any of my deer, but this deer is, I suppose he's 145 as an eight pointer. So he's a big one and, uh, and just a huge body deer. Well, I saw him running with his 10 pointer all the time. And uh, the, I, I was, in a tree along a river in a, in a, a funnel in an area where I expected the deer to move through. And it had been a really slow day. And all of a sudden this 10 pointer just comes trotting up and he's standing almost right at the base of my tree. And I'm looking down at him going, well, that's a pretty nice buck in person. This is the first time I've seen him on anything, but a trail camera. And he looks pretty good to me. And I thought, well, you know, he's only a three year old deer and it's only my second day here. I'm just going to let him walk. I hope I don't regret it. And as soon as he walked away, that big eight pointer stepped out and I got him. And, uh, so that was a, I, I would have shot that 10 pointer and then that eight pointer would have walked out and it's a much bigger deer. I went, went Oh man. But, uh, you know, uh, another deer that I shot, um, was only about 125 inch eight pointer, but he was about a mile and three quarters from the road. And, uh, it was just one of those situations where I'm like, whatever, if, if I'm going to kill a deer back in here, I'm really going to have to work for it. Um, so it's going to be a really nice deer, but then ends up uh, here. It's almost the last day that I have to hunt. And, uh, it's a pretty good buck comes walking by and I'm like, you know, that anywhere, most people would shoot that deer and being an outdoor writer and, and kind of a you know, uh, I don't want to say celebrity, I don't know what the word for it is, but a pretty well-known hunter. Um, I kind of feel like if most of the people who follow me would shoot that deer, I should probably shoot it too. (laughs) 
you know? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, so, and, and so I shot the deer and I, I, I you know, after I shot, I was really happy with it. Cause then I, I thought about the circumstances and how hard I worked for that deer and the, and, you know, I had to go home, um, you know, within two days after I killed it. And, and, uh, that was a situation where I just felt after I shot it a lot better about it. And, uh, so yeah, there's, there's been quite a few. I, I uh, took my son on a hunt one time, uh, in Southern Iowa and, uh, he was 16 at the time. Um, and man, we set up a, a decoy and I just sat settled back against the tree. We had walked down into this ravine and I put him over to the side where I, I thought if there's a, if a buck comes to this rattling, um, he'll, he'll get a pretty good shot if he comes the direction up and out of the ravine that I think he will. So I, uh, I put the doe decoy out, um, with one antler. It's, it's a flambeau decoy. I think it was at the time. This is okay. quite a few years ago, but anyway, I put one antler on it. Then I settled back against a tree about 20 yards from it, started hitting the rattling antlers. Well, I looked up, um, I kind of looked at my son on the corner of my eye and he's, his bow is drawn and he lets the arrow go. And I look, and there's a buck at the decoy and, uh, the buck had come in from, from the noise of just us rustling around in there. And I had hit the antlers maybe for 10 seconds and he already shot a 10 point buck. And I'm like, well, it doesn't always work that way. (laughs) Absolutely uh, not. The the one in a million. But yeah, yeah you know, I cool. mean, I, it was, I, it was a learning experience too. Cause I realized that it wasn't the rattling that brought that deer in. It was all the rustling around in the leaves and putting that plastic decoy together and the, all that noise. He was curious and it was right in the thick of the rut. He come rolling right in before I even had a chance. I, I didn't even have an arrow out of my quiver. So, so from the time you put that decoy out till the time the arrow flew was how long? Maybe five minutes, probably less. Wow. That's those uh, one in a million stories for the grandkids. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, well, I appreciate your time and sharing your knowledge with us. And uh, it was just great having you on the show. And, and good luck uh, next week when you head to Nebraska. All right. I sure appreciate it, Tracy. Yep. Take care. Hopefully a few of you who listen to this podcast uh, have decided after listening to the advice from Bernie that, hey, you know what? Next fall, I'm going to give uh, freelance bow hunting a try and travel to some state I've never been and see if I can kill a big buck. If you want to read his book, uh, if you like the interview and you're thinking, man, I should probably buy that book, go to BernieOutdoors.com and pick it up. I want to say thanks to everyone who listened today. To learn more about me, uh, visit TracyBreen.com. Until next time, good luck hunting.